and welcome to Unfinished Unpublished. My name's Emily Anderson and my guest this week is Maggie Tran. Maggie has the enviable job of being the head gardener at the beautiful Bramdean House in Hampshire. Her love of gardening began 10 years ago when she started community gardening. It's led her on a path that's taken her gardening around the world. You can find out all about Maggie's work in the programme notes and you can also look there for a link to her blog which is www.haughtyventure.com and she's on Instagram at haughtyventure. I'd really recommend that you have a look at both of those because they include some great pictures of the garden and the plants that Maggie's interested in. The interview is coming up now but before that, as ever, I want to let you know that you can get in touch with me via email. It's unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. So I'd like to start off by painting a picture of the garden at Bramdean. Would you be able to describe it for me? So Bramdean House is a garden with a big squiggly hedge right at the front Mm. and actually there's a busy road that kind of goes past it and you wouldn't really necessarily guess that there was a garden behind it but the hedge definitely piques your curiosity and there's Mm -hmm. a big sort of Georgian type house overlooking it and as you go in to the site there is um, some formal ward gardens very old was red brick full of lichen and mosses and things and mm. in one area it's just uh, depending what time of year very voluptuous flower borders it's a bit like a secret garden because you don't kind of mm. see it straight away so it slowly reveals itself mm. and then there's a, a kitchen garden in another ward garden section And then the rest of it is open. So when you go past the kitchen garden, it's orchard and it's more sort of Mm -hmm. wild and free there. There's trees surrounding the area. We're nestled in a valley. So Mm -hmm. when you're in the garden and kind of look back on the house, you realise that there's this lovely hill behind it. Um, And that's the sort of backdrop. And we're in the South Downs as well. So it's all sort of rolling countryside around us sounds beautiful yeah yeah it is a gorgeous <laughs> place so you mentioned there that the garden is behind a big hedge and that there's a sense of secrecy and seclusion and I read in an interview that you did for a women in horticulture group that you were drawn to Bramdean because you felt that it was a quiet gem that not many people knew about And it is, in fact, a private garden, of course. And one of the topics that's key to this podcast is about keeping things private. Mm. And I wondered if you could explain a bit more about why you were so drawn to that seclusion and sense of secrecy. (laughs) Well, the garden does open to the public from time to time. It opens six times a year for charity as part Mm. of the National Garden Scheme. And it opens for tours as well. I think I would have found it really hard if it was completely private. Mm. But the main reason I was drawn to it was I looked for a very long time after many years of training. This is my first head gardener post. Mm. 
I was trying to find a place that felt right, a place that allowed me a degree of creative autonomy. And I find that a lot of public gardens, because they have to cater for um, the needs of lots of different people, there's lots of things involved. Whilst I I was able to be a bit more, I guess, almost singular. (laughs) Yeah. And carry out uh, my vision a bit more in in this place Um, and obviously that's also down to the type of garden it is and the people who own it the family that currently owns it it's the third generation and Mm -hmm. the previous two generations were avid gardeners they loved gardening so I, I really felt that vibe when I was there and it you know it's a historic garden it's it's lovely to get a space where there's different maturity so you know there's trees here that are 200 to 300 years old and Mm. and then much newer things but it's got a very unusual collection of plants as well and there was just something about it it was sort of a a chemistry like I I like that not that many people knew about it but I felt like it had a lot of potential and that almost more people could know about it as well about those sort of special qualities and I find that a lot in private gardens as well they're often because it it, they're so orientated around the people who actually own them they they often have their own quirky kind of unique energy (laughs) and there was definitely a particular spirit of place that I connected with and so was drawn to it you know, it was a hard decision because, you know, I, I have actually been used to working a lot of public gardens and I like people. <laughs> so yeah. it was, but it was, it was just too attractive um, in terms of the opportunity to be creative and, and really do something. And also it's not a big, in terms of garden size, it's five acres. It felt like a comfortable size. I, I wanted to manage a small team as well and, and feel capable within that. So it, it kind of, ticked all the boxes and when it does open to the public do you enjoy the opportunity to show off your work or do you feel a bit nervous about that (laughs) both (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really nice to get to share a space because the way gardens are it's it's so instantly accessible people can just appreciate it on such a simple level yeah that that feels really good and you know it sort of pays off a bit you know some of the work as well I mean of course the people who own the garden the Wakefield family they appreciate what we're doing but I think they would agree because that's why they open to the public as well is being able to share that from time to time but I yeah I do get equally nervous because you know especially because you spend quite long periods of time you know (laughs) working Mm. uh, within this small team by yourself as well and uh, suddenly you just feel a little bit exposed (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, I'm the worst when it comes to at the same time I really want to have dialogue with my peers about it but at Mm. the same time it's the worst when I know my peers are coming because <laughs> I know well, they will know exactly yeah. how it works and what's been going on. Yeah. Um, and 
they might judge me terribly. And I, I think it's one of the worst when gardeners take gardeners around. They yeah. end up over explaining. It's like, oh, well, I was meant to be doing this, but yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's not quite happened. It will be though, you know, kind of thing. And yeah. and it's it's awful because it gets in the way of people just enjoying it as it is. So yeah, sometimes it, it's quite nice. The anonymity of um, just general visitors as well. <laughs> So you said that you were attracted to the garden, partly because it gave you the chance to realise your own ideas. But you also have a team at Bramdean. How collaborative a process is the gardening? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I liken gardening to like making a film, I think, or putting on like a theatre show. Especially a garden of this size, I definitely can't do it on my own there is a clear sense that as the head gardener I am like the director and I hold a certain vision for the garden and and the vision is informed it's not just uh singular (laughs) you know it's just my ideas and just what I want to do it's obviously what the people who own the garden want as well and then what I'm interested in plays a part in that but I do try and give room to people to be able to input where possible as well I think I do this best by identifying basically Mm. where people are best placed okay where their skills are the best so you know for example you if you're the director you know I'm I'm maybe not very good at lighting if you know what I mean so I leave that to the lighting technicians and specialists it's a little bit like that you know so Phil is great at the hedges and the lawns you know and actually they're my I can do them but I'm least interested in that it's great to know that someone likes that and is taking care of that I mean he can cut hedges much more effectively than I can you know with his Mm. eyes closed he does all these elaborate (laughs) pruning and and then you know I have Florence who uh, works four days a week and she works on the kitchen garden and Mm and helping out with other things as as well but that's her main focus and that's great as well because vegetables take a very particular headspace I'm I'm very drawn to the ornamental I have some grounding in vegetable growing but it's nice that someone can get very uh, technical with that as well so so that's how I see it but sometimes it's hard because people might not be quite on the same page as you are about what you're trying to achieve. A lot of it is about working out communication and how best to communicate that and getting people on board. You know, I do a lot of explaining why I make my decisions so that people can understand. Um, There's a a young chap who comes and helps Mm. us once a week called Luke. He's, he's lovely. He, He was here even before me and, you know, it took time because he he obviously worked with someone else who ran the garden who did things yeah. differently. And it took time for me to get him to understand what I was trying to achieve. And I like things to self-sow all over the place, you know, pretty plants like uh, violets and things that I don't necessarily consider as weeds. There are weeds as well. But yeah, it's, it's kind of knowing what to leave and not to leave. You know, I'll, I'll leave a poppy that might take out a thistle kind of thing. Yeah. You know? And it all depends on the context. And it took time for me to explain that to Luke because he 
he he was just like, well, it's just, or you want that bed clear, you know, it's in the way. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but now he really understands me, you know, because he can see why I've left it. I was like, well, I don't like bare earth. I prefer, if I put it this way, I prefer it to be covered by a lovely plant. You know, it might yeah. not be the plant we had planned on, but rather than a less uh, attractive plant. And, you know, I'm not, weeds have their place as well but you know it's Mm -hmm. that sort of discernment of decisions in in that kind of scenario and you said that sometimes you would take maybe other gardeners around and say oh this part was meant to be one thing but it didn't quite turn out that way Mm. And, and gardening I suppose is not an exact science to what extent do you feel in control of what happens or does nature just sometimes do its thing regardless of what you're up to (laughs) <laughs> definitely the latter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you I think one would be a fool to think that one can ever fully control everything I think it's in one's head that one can even control anything yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's a sort of a bit of an illusion even it's one of the things that drew me to gardening the fact that I mm-hmm. couldn't control it I see it as almost like a little dance between me and nature I'm a human I exist in nature I am part of it I don't believe in being very human centric and it's all about the human but we need a space to edit and create you know Mm. and I see it as gardening is a really nice way of giving space for that but there's this narrative that you have with nature but you it's a lot of sort of toing and throwing and where you kind of learn try and learn to talk with it as best as possible you try and do what you can to achieve certain results so that's the interesting thing I have I have things that I do try and work on to try and achieve and I Mm. and I try and listen to nature and see and how that operates and work with it to aim and work towards what I want to achieve but at the same time being very open and flexible anything can happen you know weather changes things I had I had a whole week planning doing this Mm. kind of pruning editing the beds in a certain way and then it would be I don't know covered all in snow so I can't I can't do anything about it and there's certain things that has timing attached to it I can only prune certain things at certain times of year or sow seeds certain seeds at certain time of year so I do my best to work according to that but it's it's funny because I feel I do manage to reach the milestones but by having almost like an inbuilt ability to be able to improvise and work flexibly with what happens in terms of the elements. So I get the impression that you're not too bothered about a garden looking kind of very neat and polished yeah it's interesting so this is where I have to be very careful (laughs) (laughs) because obviously I do it as a job professionally and I have to achieve a certain standard I feel funny enough like innately somehow like I'm this kind of untidy gardener (laughs) (laughs) but um, I'm always considering the context how people respond to a space. Presentation is really key for me. I deliberately try and balance between having it feeling very naturalistic, but not 
looking neglected for example you know I it there's there's I, I try to recognize certain points where it feels uncomfortable for people and and it's also about the right places for certain things you know on on the edges you can allow that to be even more informal but you know if you have we've got very spectacular borders you know double mirror image borders now mm. <laughs> you know they are meant to be spectacle yeah so they have to be curated and edited in a particular way because people read them differently but even there i try to do this juxtaposition of um having it feel natural but never messy and then you know being able to turn that off by degrees for example I love (laughs) actually after working on the borders this sort of intense showpiece go Mm. to the orchard where it's much more wild and the grass is let to grow tall and in that context people understand that but we you know equally we carve paths within it so that people feel like they can navigate between the wildness and and don't just feel like nature is just taking over so it's this really delicate balance of of reading how people respond being able to input the way that I like to garden and and I'm just very thankful actually that the people who own the garden are very sympathetic and they (laughs) and they and they like what I do you know easily people can think it's messy they want it to be very trim and you know there's there's nothing wrong in that there's there's different gardens catering for different spaces but for me I aim for it to be, it's not even a matter of tidy or untidy. I'm aiming for a particular feeling. I'm aiming for it not to feel sterile, to feel like a very alive place. I want, and I want it, even though it's spectacular and on display, for it to somehow feel comfortable. And, and for me, that's, that's part of the interesting work, you know. And, and it's funny because for my own garden, my own backyard garden, I, I don't have, I don't have these scruples about things. But working yeah. for someone else, I, I am constantly considering that. So you treat your own private garden quite differently from your work, which is, I suppose, semi-public or for someone else. Yeah, it's definitely less high maintenance, you know. Okay. <laughs> it's nice as well because I, I like a space that just doesn't feel like I'm carrying the work necessary home. Thankfully, you know, my, my partner has been doing most of it. I just sort of point at things. But it, it's still nice because it's it's just, just not as gardened. And for me, I, I appreciate spaces like It's funny because I talk to other professional gardeners and often they agree it's just like (laughs) instead of like a high maintenance border they'll just prefer to have a meadow outside something that's soothing (laughs) and doesn't remind them because you know I mentioned that when you're a gardener you just look at everything with such critique you know oh that needs staking or that needs cutting back (laughs) people just see flowers but you see a million and and (laughs) things that you haven't got around to doing yet so it's nice to have that space where you enter it and you can shut off that as well and accept that so you know I'm okay that my lawn doesn't get clipped and cut all the time and actually I've adapted it a bit to how I work as well so we've we've been making a bit of a tapestry lawn uh, so we don't have to cut it that often but there's (laughs) you know there's wildflowers and insects to enjoy and and just none of that pressure at all yeah I mean that ties in very well to what other people have said on this podcast about the value in just having your own thing that isn't necessarily for anyone else and how relaxing (laughs) that is or can be yeah it's important I think yeah 
And you said that the owners of the house are very kind of understanding and open to your ideas, but it is a really old garden, as you've described. And I know that it's been passed down over several generations. Could you tell me maybe the story of how it's been passed down and how it's changed? Yes, a little bit. I've been trying to learn more about the history myself. I've been here just over two years and yeah, getting to know it piece by piece. So the family that I work for at the moment, they've had it since the 40s. Prior to that, there's had different ownership. Even the architecture of the house can tell you that. You know, it started off like a much smaller Georgian house. And then before the family, there, at one point there was a spinster lady, uh, apparently, yeah. who owned the site. And I don't know, being a spinster, she felt the right thing to do was to uh, attach a drawing room onto it. <laughs> um, no, I'm not a, no, it's a ballroom, a ballroom that's now a turned ballroom. into a drawing room. Yes. Okay. I like her style. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so this is grand room that's attached to it. And then um, throughout the years, there's been servant quarters and there's there's like a drain pipe that's like from the 1700s. So it's this interesting mm. hodgepodge. And in terms of the garden itself, so I mentioned the walls, they're very, very old. And I mentioned there's specimen trees there that are beyond the time. The garden, as you see it now, is definitely formulated mainly from this current family. Prior to that, the clues that I have to what it was like, there's a, a young historian and a very enthusiastic young man called Tom who has been unearthing things around the village. And okay. a few years ago, there uh, was a quite a bad drought here mm. and it revealed particular dry areas. And the dry areas were actually, there were these very neat, tidy rectangle spaces of old beds that existed in in the garden yeah and they looked like sort of quite classic typical victorian style beds were probably yeah. having you know that that kind of changeover annual bedding i can see just from that it's departed quite a long way from that it's you know the beds are much more curvaceous now possibly bigger and there's probably more things going on you know we we don't have like big bedding areas um a lot yeah. of things are perennial uh, or things self so in their uh, self generating perpetuating plants uh so there's much more structure uh, much more mm. of a bone but even from uh since the families had it i you know there's there's photos and and things come in and out uh, all the time because a garden reaches a certain maturity especially a historic garden like this so you you get as yeah. I mentioned the old elements where there's 200 year old trees but then you've got that's still around but then you have things that just die out I've got pictures of topiary that doesn't quite exist or they're a different shape now and the orchard had a lot more certain kinds of daffodils there were certain kinds of cherry trees that aren't there anymore the borders themselves the the mirror board mirror beds that I mentioned they even in terms of the plants you can see the trend over the years when it first started out that yeah there was a sort of classic country garden type plants cottage garden sorry I meant type plants and there's been a big change in gardening where there's been a lot of introduction of North American plants for example and sort of late later interest and things and just even seeing the plant makeup 
you can see the, the change of history from that, you know, and the trend yeah. from that. One of the other reasons why I was drawn to it as well, it's got many layers. It's got all these hidden layers. And there's this decision you have to make of which bits you want to keep, which which you want to reveal. And, you know, I spent the first year here just observing and just trying to listen and look at the garden and see what's happening and very carefully try and bring certain things back that had gotten too much. And then through that process would absolutely reveal something that had not appeared for years because it didn't have the space mm. to grow you know so and it, and it's still that kind of garden where I'm finding treasures all the time and and piecing yeah. all these puzzles and and then what I also find interesting about it is how it connects with a wider picture of of history and trends as well it's not just this garden mm. has these kind of particular spalliers or this kind of layout there was a certain kind of planting trend that was happening at a certain period of time that informed the way something is laid out so yeah it it, it, it's changed it's changing all the time and it's changed quite a lot in many different kind of ways and I know that you're quite attentive to the question of how best to treat historical gardens could you explain your thoughts on what the future of historical gardens should be is it that thing of kind of careful uncovering of a garden's past in terms of, so historical gardens most of them are under private ownership and they make up a huge part of green space mm-hmm. and uh, for me I see it as again an opportunity to do something beneficial in terms of so for example around these parks it's it's mainly huge agriculture fields of um, rape and things that are being grown it's not very diverse in terms of wildlife in those areas but here just this sort of five acres nestled amongst all of this it's Mm. incredibly alive with all sorts of different insects and and other wildlife and and it's mainly because it's it's allowed to be very diverse um there's been yeah. a love for lots of different kinds of plants and and an appreciation of these things as well just even seeing that shows me how we can all play a part yeah. in being great stewards of these spaces that are you know beneficial to different kinds of life also little poetic spaces for the soul if you know what I mean as well so I feel like there's just a real opportunity to play a part in helping make the world nicer and more sustainable and if many historic gardens were to go along in that vein it, it you know we could create this uh, network of, of just yeah. wonderful oasis plural (laughs) yeah and we're in an environment now where you 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 have to be sustainable there's there's no there's no question about it you have to try and be as sustainable as possible these historic gardens can be great examples of of how that can be done but Mm -hmm. it's tricky as well because these gardens were laid out in a, a way that suited a certain time 
you know, there's a, a, for for it to be guarded in a, in a very traditional way, which now that we understand more is not, not perhaps so sustainable. You know, once upon a time, even a garden like this, there will be an army of, of men mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> usually um, working here, and you you can get pot washes. You'll you know do pot washing for like a penny, you know, an hour yeah. or something. And you know, we're in a time now where we we want to pay people well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in order to do that, yeah, and then you know people don't have the resources, the same financial resources that they had then as well for these kind mm-hmm. of gardens necessarily. And so you have to work out then how you can do more with less, how you can realistically, you know, have less gardeners and run a space like this as well. And you spoke in there about playing a part in a larger network, which I think might relate to something that you mentioned to me in a message, which was that you said that being a gardener allows you to be a bit more behind the scenes. Do you feel that the work of a gardener is quite anonymous? Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. Yes, in a in a way, it's not you know because I, I I mentioned that I did performance and I put myself right mm. in the spotlight. I'll be the one you know center of attention, everyone eyes on me kind of thing. Yeah. and it was very nerve wracking, <laughs> you know. Hmm. And now I'm able to have elements of what I was trying to achieve in my performance work, but mm. I don't I don't have to be the one putting myself right there in with the, the harsh light shining down look at me yeah. kind of thing I don't know lots of different gardeners and I think there are ones that are less anonymous um, because they choose to be and then mm. there are ones who you know they, they don't they don't want to be known so they just sort of carry on with what, with what they're doing and and quite happily doing that but it's funny because I'm I'm here all the time. Um, you know, w- often when we're open, I'm here, so people can talk to me directly. So it's not that I'm completely hidden either. You know, people want to talk to me not because it's oh you created this garden, but you know they want to know about what's going on in terms of the plants and you know what is that plant or how do you do this. So you are present, but I guess in a different way than when I was in the performance work. So I don't, I don't feel too unknown, if you know what I mean. I guess the, the it's nice that the emphasis for me is more on the creative process and being able to practice that rather than worrying about me, the person, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. how to present that and yeah, all of that kind of thing. You said there that you used to do performance and you do have a background in fine art. Could you explain how you got from art to gardening and what you see the connection as being? Because I know you said to me that you see gardening as a continuation of your creative practice. Yeah, I think the same. <laughs> I've never felt, yeah. felt like I I think differently. Um, my medium, um, I would say, mm. has changed. I, but I feel like essentially I'm trying to achieve very similar things. So, you know, in performance, I was working with the live element with time. I was trying to create spaces that took you somewhere. So transporting in a certain way. I was trying to put together scenarios that wouldn't 
necessarily be together and Mm -hmm. just to have people kind of notice things I was trying to interact very directly with people in a very particular way you know there in that moment and now and I remember trying to not rehearse as best as possible um, because I wanted to work with the moment and how that felt and what was going on at the time of being able to really respond to that and be really spontaneous mm-hmm. the gardening I feel still does all of that it it works with time it's uh, it's funny because I'm allowed to be a lot slower with time in it as well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is great <laughs> because I think what happened why I also got more drawn to something like gardening was I enjoy making my performance artwork and interacting with people but I felt within the context that I was doing those artworks and even though I I would try to do it in non-conventional like not gallery spaces type sites I uh, felt I was still doing it to a very niche audience people who are already interested in art in a certain way I've always wanted to be able to engage and interact with a wide range of people. And mm-hmm. and the nice thing about gardening, it's so accessible, <laughs> you know, and mm. everyone can relate to it. Um, and it appeals to the senses are not very dissimilar. You know, you're, you know, there's the, the smell, visual feelings, all of that is possible to be conjured by a garden Mm. just as much as you can conjure that up in a moment in a performance except sometimes in a performance you're so nervous your nerves take over Mm. and you can't even feel the moment whilst you know there's there's love you know I was trying to work I love the the, as I mentioned the out of control the the, the not having total control and the surprise element or spontaneity of of what can happen beyond me and well apparently nature does that so much better (laughs) (laughs) um and it allows for that to happen in in this far less stressful way in terms of having to come up with solutions and all the time um you know if if unexpected things happen which happens Mm. a lot with a garden that is a a constant creative process as well (laughs) and are there unexpected things that happen in the garden still capable of winding you up or being stressful or or are you just kind of very zen because you're constantly gardening and it's meant to be very calming and good for you (laughs) I went into gardening because I was able to be very present um, and in the moment myself and found it very relaxing I learned that when you do it as a job, it can be quite different. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> I think gardeners sometimes are the least zen. You know, so sometimes <laughs> there's a kerfuffle that goes behind the scenes, the drama. You wouldn't believe sometimes, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're trying to achieve certain things um, for certain deadlines that you set yourself, which, you know, yeah. um, seems almost nonsensical when you, or, you know, if we talk about control, not really having control. And you you can be caught short and and basically do absolutely opposite and and be in quite a, a stressful mindset. But I have tried to work out ways where I can nurture those moments still, mm. but also just um, <laughs> accept that sometimes because it's my job as well 
there are just such stressful scenarios I have to deal with. So it's almost like the difference between you're working at the time and you've got a certain brain on where you're getting the job done. And then at the end of the day, I switch off and I try and walk around the garden after work and not look at it in a work way and just try to yeah. appreciate it just for the uh, as the garden and it's funny because even just doing that trying to be mindful about that you you it's hard to completely switch off but it, it's still you do still look at things in in a different uh, light you know I will start where I was just busy seeing a rose that it just needed pruning I can start seeing again the light behind it and the smell of it and just appreciate that simplicity but it mm. it's something I have to bring myself back to all the time and remind myself because yeah when you make your passion your work you can easily lose sight of it the same that gardens never finish and the gardening work never finishes you have to recognize the points where you take stock of what you do you know, otherwise it's just one big blur. And then what's the point in that as well? You know, <laughs> it sounds a bit like trying to read for fun when your job is oh, to analyze yeah. books, which I've got some experience <laughs> yeah. on. So I can sympathize. <laughs> so you said that it may never be possible to say that a garden is finished, mm. but you did talk, talk there about kind of taking stock. So is there a point when you can stand back and say, yes, I've satisfied the ideas or the vision that mm. I've had? for this space yeah you can have moments surprisingly where you can feel satisfied or satisfied enough I guess it's it's trying to stay open often you are dictated by how the seasons work I'm what's called a successional gardener as well so I am trying to bring out the next display mm. to the another you know and carry that keep that continuing continuous so mm-hmm it all starts at um, even the bones of the garden and how that looks and then as it fleshes out how it fleshes out and how that then continues what crescendo follows Mm -hmm. what and I often find what happens is I set up almost like these lists unrealistic huge list of ideal of what I would like to get done and then you just have to get realistic about what is actually possible. And it's interesting because it sort of narrows down as well mm. as you sort of get closer to the moment. So, for example, there'll be a point where I can't prune certain things anymore and I just have to accept it as it is. But I, you edit as you go along. You go, OK, well, I can't do that as thoroughly as I would like to do that. But if I do even a little bit in this particular way, it still helps make a difference. And then for certain things, I can go more in depth Mm -hmm. and I'll do that a bit more. It's weird because you you manage to achieve things, yet easily, you know, when one thing stops, there's something else that can easily Mm -hmm. be done. I guess it just comes back to that discernment again, just Mm. um, making that judgment as best as possible. And this is where, you know, and that link again in terms of creative practice, I feel like all artists do this. They have to work out at what point, Mm. because a a painting can be endless as well, which point do you really say it's done? And you just have to decide in a way. This is related, I think. I spoke to another gardener who said that he feels like he starts gardens and then 
gives them away and leaves rather than actually finishing them oh yeah so nice. because a garden yeah so, so I, I figured that because a garden is always changing and it's never done is it difficult to know when you should walk away and change projects do you just have to do it in the middle of things yeah it can be difficult sometimes there's sometimes real tension between that sometimes you've got to sort of remember in the whole scheme of things somehow it all sort of doesn't matter mm. you know we're not whenever I've not been able to uh, achieve something that I've, I've wanted to it hasn't meant the garden's collapsed you can't hold things as they are all the time mm. and that and this is why I always try and get out of this zone as well this, this garden zone here yeah. and look at and what I mean by that is like look at other people's gardens look at other people's work to uh, just kind of put things into perspective it's relates a lot to my interest for example in legacy you know you, you just can't keep something exactly yeah. the same you can try and do your best to pass down things as best as possible for example you know uh, the fact that I'm just making records trying to make do comprehensive records for the garden you know the next person mm-hmm. that like you know mm-hmm. maybe years after me comes along and takes over from me they might not keep everything the same but at least there's the records and they can kind of then decide how to kind of carry it on but it's that openness that you can't keep everything strictly the same I started out in community gardening and there was a allotment Mm. site that uh, it was very precious I accidentally ended up with it and you know I came to a time I had to leave Brighton and I wanted to give it over to someone uh, who would utilize it and it was nice just I guess doing my best to find the right person who would really appreciate it. So, you know, it it continues to be a community garden. So that was nice. And the fact that it was able to have more different people um, being able to share a space and they were local and really also in need of that garden. But, you you know, I have to to turn away as well. Not that anything they're doing, you know, I disagree with, but I have to turn away that it's just not my work anymore. being a gardener often working quite on your own a lot of the times uh, you don't really get a chance to have interesting dialogue about what you're doing I thought it was nice to sort of take it out the usual scenario talking to uh, someone who's not a, a fellow professional horticulturist as well so <laughs> I feel very indulged. <laughs>